We've been in the book of Judges. If you have a Bible, I hope you do. Would you go ahead and open up with me and meet me in uh, Judges chapter 11? Judges chapter 11 is where we're going to be. So what we've been doing really this summer is uh, we've been kind of tracing these different characters, these judges, these people that God had has set over uh, the nation of Israel, that even at times the nation of Israel has set over themselves. And uh, these individuals that uh, come from unqualified situations, unexpected circumstances, people that we would and culturally would have been disregarded and set aside, um, that God in his sovereignty and in his goodness has uh, chosen to do unbelievable things through. Uh, We've seen uh, God move through uh, men that were flawed, come from uh, just unreal, uh, you know, backgrounds, things that uh, would mar, and and in our culture today, would we look at them and say, there's no way that that God would put his hand on that person. We've seen God do the opposite, that he has, in fact, moved mightily through these people. We're going to add a character to this study today as we wrap up our time in Judges. Uh, We've already, in the the past, you can go and find the the media there for that, the different sermons that we've preached, a series on Samson. That's a huge block of the remainder of, of Judges. But today, we're going to look at Jephthah. Uh, And in Jephthah's life, what I want you to see today is he, like the rest of the judges, are, they're not put together. They're um, what we would deem as unusable people. He comes from a really jacked up situation we're going to see in the very first verse of chapter 11. But what I want you to see today, kind of as a place to hone in, is that, uh, is that there is a very real danger and hurt that comes to not only you, but those around you when our faith is distracted. Today, our, our bottom line is faith without distractions. We want that to be the thing that we leave. If you like to, like you're like me and you like to know where you're going, you have a destination, something to shoot after, man, this is where we want to go. We want to call you today through the story of Jephthah, through the judges, as we wrap this up, to be a people who are laser locked on the glory of God, that we know uh, what the Lord would have for us. We would be so passionate about pursuing Jesus and making much of him, uh, and our, our life would not be distracted by the things that are just pulling at us. You know, I, I read a, um, a couple statistics this week as I was thinking about distraction. The first thing that got to my mind was, uh, you know, the distraction that happens behind the wheel of a car, right? We all know what that's like. Maybe you experienced that firsthand this morning as you're on your way in, you're, you're putting putting a McGriddle in your kid's mouth in the back seat, and you're just trying to beat the kids from killing each other on the way to church, and you're, you know, there's distraction all the time. Maybe it was a, a text that you couldn't, uh, you couldn't not answer in that moment because it was so important, or you had to see how many likes you got on your Instagram story last night, or whatever the case is. Distracted driving is just a huge issue. In fact, uh, one of the things I read this week was that it is growing to become the largest health concern in America today. Distracted driving. You know, distracted driving is the number number one cause of fatalities on the road today. Not DUIs, not uh, whatever, you know, whatever the situation, the, the infrastructure situations that happen or, or just freak accidents, blowout tires. It's distracted driving is the number one cause of fatalities on the roadway today. I, I read this thing. It was super interesting. It said, when you respond to a text on your phone while you're driving. If you're just going 55 miles an hour, which we all know, we go way faster than that, even in a 45, because you got to get wherever you're going, right? So, uh, and we like to get where we're going quick. Well, 55, you're just going 55, you look, at it, you look at your phone for five seconds, you've just traveled more than the distance of a football field with your eyes on your phone. That's crazy to me. 
right? Like it, you think of a football player runs down the center of the field with his eyes off of some, or the people around him. He's going to get killed. We're on a, in a daggum speed rocket going down the, the interstate with our eyes on Instagram. And we think that we're going to fare much better. But the reality is today, more than nine people today will die because of distracted driving. More than nine people. And I would tell you that the spiritual realities of distracted faith is far greater The casualty, the hurt that can come, not only for you, but for those around you, is far greater. Look, today in Jephthah's life, we will see that because of his distraction spiritually, that uh, was such a thing that marked his life. Um, Not only was there great hurt in his life, but it cost his family. It cost the nation of Israel confusion. And and today's is what he's remembered by. And so we're going to look at this together Let's look at uh, Judges chapter 11, verse 1. I want to go there together. Everybody doing good? We alive? We well? You had a couple co- uh, cups of coffee this morning? A couple more than the first service? All right. That wasn't a jab. Yeah, it was. All right. Verse 1 says this. It says, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. It's a change of events there, right? Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, it says that they drove Jephthah out of, out of the home and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. You're not mama's baby, right? Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And it says that worthless fellows collected around Jephthah, and he went out. With him, Wouldn't that be a great thing for the Lord to write of your friends that you have worthless fellows in your life, right? Well, that was a joke. Anyway, um, so who's Jephthah? Let's, let's spend time in this, in this idea. Jephthah, it says, we're, we're giving some qualifiers right off, some things that define him and, and really um, describe who this man is. Uh, it says that he was the son of a, he was a Gileadite. A Gileadite. He was the son of Gilead. Now, Gilead was a man, a, just an incredibly influential person uh, in uh, the history of the nation of Israel. He was uh, one of the founding uh, or the founders of this group of Israelites that we find in this passage. And so he comes from influence. I mean, that's an incredible truth that we could find in, for Jephthah. He had a lot of things going for him. But then in just a couple of words later, there's a massive twist in this text that makes him go from the outright first pick to uh, a downright outcast, like, immediately. It says that he was uh, the son of Gilead, and then it says he was the son of a prostitute. And so you see these, in this culture, man, that would have been incredibly impairing to someone's ability to be used or, or to be perceived as someone that could have been a great leader or someone of great potential influence as if you were the son of a prostitute. Well, it says that the story goes that his brothers find out. They grow up, they find out the situation with their brother. They may have thought their whole life that, man, this guy, they may have thought he was a little weird, but they didn't know what the situation was, right? That he was the son of a prostitute. And so what do they do? They, in that time, man, the, 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 the brothers of, of a, the sons of a family would inherit the, they would be the, the, the recipients of the inheritance of the family. And so they said, we, we don't want you to have any part in this, right? Let's get rid of this guy. He's not even, he's not even mama's son, some other lady's son. And he's a prostitute's son. So let's drive him out. So it says that they drove, they drove Jephthah, they run him out of the house, they they chase him out of town. It says that 
that he goes and he takes up residence in an area called Tob. Now, uh, if you do a little, little kind of geographical research on where this area is, uh, Tob is kind of situated among some pagan tribes, uh, these Moabites and these Ammonite people. Some commentaries I read this week said that a little bit, gave me a little bit better perspective of who this man was. It said that he was, uh, he, he says, when it says that he was um, collected, people that collected around him were worthless fellows. He's, he's talking about thieves. He was, he was a, basically running with a band of, of thieves. A, he was a vagabond. He didn't have a home. He was a sojourner living on the, kind of the outskirts. It's like this Mad Max, or if you've watched like, uh, or maybe like the Book of Eli, this is what I see taking place, right? This is who this man is. He's living. He's dumpster diving. He's, he's, he's ransacking travelers and taking the things uh, alongside of those around him. He's taking, he's taking uh, things from people in order to make a living and to, and to, to make a life for himself. This is who Jephthah is. Well, the story goes on, incredible irony, right? The story goes on that not only he's driven out, and then these, this pagan kingdom, these Ammonites, begin to oppress Israel. They come in and they, they, they come to war against the Israelites. Well, they don't have a fearless leader. They don't have a, uh, just an awesome warrior at the helm. They, they're, they're, they're in a tight spot, right? They're, they're, they're kind of starting to freak out at this point. And so what happens is it says in irony, it says that they, they, the very ones that drove him out, right? It says the elders of Gilead get together and they say, we've got to have someone to lead us against these people. We're in, we're in trouble. They go and they retrieve Jephthah to be their leader through a little back and forth. He agrees to lead them. He goes to war against the Ammonite people. He, he is victorious, and, 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 and it says that uh, he, he leads the people of Israel, and he becomes their leader, and, and it's just an awesome day for Israel. Now, let me tell you this. His story is not marked by uh, just military conquest, by strong leadership. What we remember Jephthah for in this passage is his distracted faith. This is what we're going to look at. We're going to see this in this text, that Jephthah... Man, had in a moment of a huge turn of events, he was now, he was once an outcast. Now he's the downright leader of Israelite. He's the, they've come and they've, they've retrieved him to lead them against the Ammonites. He makes a vow with the Lord. The, the, God gives the Ammonites into his hand. He's victorious. It's an awesome moment. And, but, but when we look a little bit closer, look a little bit closer at the vow that he made with the Lord, we see that Jephthah was massively distracted. And this distraction is so, is so fatal to his reputation that when we read this passage, it not only literally cost him his daughter, but it will cost the nation of Israel. And so what's, uh, a couple things I want to point out about this. Again and again, when we, when we talk about Jephthah, right, we see this man that, was unqualified and unexpected to be a leader. But yet God, again and again, like he does with all the judges, he does an incredible work through him, right? He, he does just an unexpected thing through the unexpected man. And this is a theme that we see kind of playing out on repeat through judges. It's this, it's this theme that kind of elevates itself, not only as it concentrated and kind of uh, amplified in the book of Judges, but it's a theme that we see throughout the book of the Bible, like the entire narrative of Scripture. This is a theme that runs throughout all of the pages, that God uses those who are unworthy to do things that they would never even imagine he could do with themselves if they were 
humble and if they were willing to do the hard things he calls them to do. Now, the reason I want to pause here for a second is because I want to ask you this. I think it begs the question because we're now at the end of our series. We've seen this as a theme throughout the whole book. Let me ask you this. Do you think it could be true in your life? Do you think, I want you to think about the people in your life, your kids, your uh, friends, family, maybe your husband. Do you think you're, because I think, you know, I, I'm most well acquainted. I know the failures. I know the shortcomings. I know what makes my wife mad. I know her past. I know the things. I know the buttons to press, you know, to, to get her a little angry. I'm seeing somebody like, yeah, amen. I know, I know how to hit those buttons too, right? Like, you know the shortcomings and the failures of your family. Are you under this understanding that because of, man, how far they've fallen or how rebellious they may be today or how hard set against the, the, the will of God they are today that, that God's out, that they are some, somehow outside of his reach? Have you come under that understanding? Maybe, maybe it's your kids. Maybe your kids are rebellion. I mean, they, they're, just, they're just, man, they, they are making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, and they're off the rails. You're waking up to calls in the middle of the night. You're going down to the jail and having to pick them up, bail them out of jail, get them out of tough situations continually. This might be the situation for some of us in this room. Have you, have you maybe, I think if we're really honest, have you maybe thought that God couldn't do a just transformation in their life and start a movement through them for his glory? What about your friends? People in your life, you know? People you surround yourself with, you, you, you know some people in your school, and it's like, you know, we, we, we know the, the reputation. We know, we've seen the Instagram stories. We've seen the, uh, we've heard the chatter in the locker room. We know what happens. You know, we've heard what, what the weekends look like while we're on the line at Nissan. We've, we've, we've had some of these conversations. We know kind of the, the track record and the, uh, and the ledger that stacks against maybe some of the friends, the people in your life. Do you think maybe God could not? Write the same story we see in Judges in their life today. Here's why I say that. Because I believe, like Jephthah, our culture has a way of speaking something into our life that really begins to mar the lens by which we see God and the, what we expect Him able to do. See, I think because in our life today, think about everything in your life, really, okay? Uh, think about your business, maybe your, your, your place of work. Your value to your company is based on your performance, right? Like the, the number, in a lot of ways, the number you see when you log into your bank account is a, some sort of a reflection of the amount of worth that your company maybe sees you as. That's not all the case, right? But, but it is the sum of your hard work. It's the sum of, of whatever you have on your resume, a degree, or whatever uh, accomplishments you've created for yourself. If, if you work harder, you get more. If, you, uh, if you're a little bit better, if you're a little greater, you're worth more and there's there's more for you, right? This is what our culture says of us. We see it in sports too, right? If you're no good, you ain't playing, right? If, you, if, if, you're, not, if, you, if you're not better than the next guy, you're riding the pine. Like, this is the reality we see playing out, not only in the business world, but in the sports world and in academics. Let's talk about that. I mean, the reality is if you don't know the answers to the test, you're not getting a good grade, okay? And if you're not a little better than the next person, then they're going to get a little bit more acknowledgement than you are. And so we see this play out on really the, the macro level in our world. 
And I think if we're not careful, what happens is we have a really, really hard time not applying everything, all of our experiences to the Bible instead of letting the Bible apply its teaching to our experiences, especially when it comes to spiritual realities and the things that we see in our life. You see, I think if we're not careful, we can allow culture to distract us from the truth that Jesus speaks over our lives. And what I think the writer of Judges Samuel wants to tell us about what, is, what God can do in our lives today. Since everything we know is performance-based, everything we see is, is a product of our, of our working, we begin to, I think, process our lives and our families and, and the way we view our kids and our husbands and wives and friends. We, we, we begin to begin to sideline people in our lives and count people out and think God would never be able to use them. They're, they're outside of his reach. But listen, the gospel in God's economy actually flips that understanding of our world upside down. And it says that those who are humble, God lifts. Those who are mighty and puffed up, God, he, he smashes, he lowers them. And so today, I mean, I want us to consider even Christ as we think about our lives and those in it. Think about what Paul said of Jesus. All right, this wasn't just a cute detail to give us an underdog story of who Jesus is. He said this, he said in, in Philippians chapter 2, he says, though this is Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he, said he, did not, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He, he, he emptied himself. He stepped out of glory, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Look at here. It says he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we know the rest of the narrative, don't we? That there is no higher name bestowed on Christ. There's no, there is no higher name on heaven and on earth and under the earth that is, that is placed on Jesus. He sits at the right hand of God on high today. And he, to his face, all knees will bow. Right? So, so the one who came in ultimate humility, giving up his life and dying a death that, that we deserved, through his humility, God raises him. And listen, this, is, this principle in Judges is true of our Savior. And I think God wants us, and the, the arc narrative of Judges is screaming for us to not give up hope. Don't stop praying for that spouse. Don't, don't, don't count that, that kid in your life, that your son or your daughter out because of some string of, of bad decisions or some uh, narrative in their life that is bent on rebellion. Don't think that God can't step into that story like he did Paul. I want to remind you this morning, Paul was on his way, Saul of Tarsus was on his way to murder Christians when Jesus stepped into his story and wrote a new one. And so he can do it in your husband's life. He can do it in your mom's life or your, or your dad's life. It don't matter if they're on their deathbed and they're bent on serving themselves. They are, they are bent on materialism or this personal satisfaction. Maybe their whole life has been, been spent serving themselves. I promise you, my God can step into their life and write a new story. He can do it in yours. So I just look at everybody else around us. Let me ask you a question. What about you? Have you thought, man... If only Matt knew, if only R.C. knew what, what really my story's like, really what I come from, what, what I've really been a part of. They wouldn't see my, my story so with such hope. But the reality is it doesn't matter what I see, it matters what God sees. And, uh, and our God is able, I promise you. 
He's able. This is the story we see playing out in Jephthah's life. After being kicked out and ran out of his house, ran out of town, the chapter goes on, says that he's approached and, and pleaded with to come and lead them. Now, listen, I saw this playing out in this patch when I read this, and I could not get Armageddon out of my head, right? It's like the U.S. government goes and gets these cowboys, these convicts, to, to come and save the planet, right? It's like, we really, really don't like you, but we need you, right? So, so come, and, come and help us. This is, what, this is what we see playing out, right? This is also maybe, maybe a little bit closer to home. This is what happens when your kids tell you they hate you. They storm off to bed and they come back later and say, please feed me. Right? Like, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to survive. Can, I, can you please feed me? Right? This is, this is the, the situation. Like, they need Jephthah. So they come to him. They negotiate some terms. And they, they settle this agreement. They say, uh, they say Jephthah, look, we, we need you to be our leader. And Jephthah says, okay, I'll do it. If God gives the Ammonites into my hand, I'll be your leader. I will be the head of Israel over this, this, this tribe of Gilead. So they agree, and Jephthah goes to work. And here's what Jephthah does. This is uh, pretty interesting. Instead of just like this mighty warrior, we think he's just going to storm into battle on some steed and just, you know, mop down these Ammonites. What, what he does is he, he writes a letter. <laughs> he sends a message to, uh, to this, this king of the Ammonites, it says. And, and he says, hey, look, man, why, what, what's your problem, right? What's the deal? Why are you coming against God's people? Why are you trying to, to just destroy them? Well, the king of the Ammonites, it says he writes back, and he says, because when you, were, when you came up out of Egypt, you, you took our land. Or you got to give back what's ours. Jephthah writes back, and he says, no. <laughs> no, we didn't. You, your facts are off. Right? We were coming up into the land that God had promised us, and we, we wrote kindly, diplomatically, said to this, this, uh, this king of the Ammonites at the time named Sihon, and, and he said, Sihon, can we please just pass through? Just let us go through. It'd be, it's the quickest route, right? I'm trying to take I-24, not old, old Nashville Highway, right? Can we, can we do that? And, uh, and, and he, said, he, he said to him, no. And so he, he tried to oppress him. They beat down the people. God gave this Ammonite kingdom into Israel's hands, and, and so they said, okay, what's yours now is mine. And so we took over this land. And, and so he said, if you're the one in the wrong by trying to come against us. We were trying to solve this peaceably. Well, the story goes that this king is not impressed by his, his, uh, his letter writing. He's not moved to change his opinion. He's, he's coming to take over Israel. And so, uh, so Jephthah is resolved now. There's only one way to end this. And uh, he's about to lower the boom on the Ammonites. And so just before he does, just before he crosses over, it says that he makes a vow with the Lord. Now, this is where things get a little weird, okay? This is the part of the passage that this week when I, was, when I saw that, I'm always excited to preach. And, and then when I read, the, when I read the, the text, I'm like, oh, great. This is the weird part. Right? This is the part that, of course, R.C. is out of town for. Right? This is the one that you give the student pastor and you get out of town so you have plausible deniability if he butchers it. Uh, and so <laughs> he showed up today. He was, did y'all see this? He was on the front row of the, of the, of the, the chairs up here, and, uh, and he's, he's gone, him, him and Callie. And so they, they just we'll, we'll raise our hands for come satisfy. We're getting out of here by the time he gets to verse 34. So, hey, uh, let's... Let's look at this together, because I want you to see, I want you to see this, this passage. Verse 34 says this. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. Oh, pause. 
forgot to tell you the most important part. He makes this vow with the Lord, okay? And here's what he says. He says to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, when I get home and I, when I arrive home in victory, when, it, when, the, when the parade's been rolled out, the first thing that comes out of the doors of my home, I will sacrifice to you as a burnt offering. Then we'll pick up, all right? So verse 34 says, Then he came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him. His only daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She's excited to see her daddy. He's, he's been gone off to war, and she's just amazed that he's he not only healthy, but, but just to see his face. She runs out to greet daddy. You might, like when I get home from work, my daughter throws the door open sometimes, and, or Tiffany throws the door open because she's vertically challenged at this point, and she, she runs out to meet me a lot of times. It's the best feeling in the world. I'm like, yes, this is awesome. So, so she runs out to meet her dad and says she was his only child because he had neither son nor daughter. And it says, and as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes, which was a sign in, in, in the time of the, of the text that, uh, of, of just deep grief. They would, they would rip their clothes. They would throw ashes over their head just to, it, just to show just the amount of pain and turmoil and stress that they were feeling in the moment. And it said, alas, my daughter, he says to his daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. I've made a promise to God I've got to keep. Look at this response of his incredibly obedient daughter. And she said to him, my father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what you have, you have said to the Lord, that he's avenged you on your enemies and on the Ammonites. She said to her father, let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed and says she and her companions and they wept for their virginity on the mountains. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who, had, who did with her according to the vow that he had made. So he offers his only daughter up as a burnt offering to the Lord. He says, she had never known a man, and it became, a, it became custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. So, so Jephthah heads home. Uh, from war, he's, he's, he's won. God gave the Ammonites into his hand. And it says he, as he got within eyesight of, of the front door, his daughter bust out. You can imagine, right? Like your kid, your only, if you, some of you maybe only have one child or, or any of your kids. It really doesn't change the perspective, right? One kid comes out. Can you imagine what you would feel? Knowing what you're about to have to, to go through. He goes to his daughter, he explains, the, he explains the vow that he made, the terms of the deal with the Lord. And, and his daughter said, you've got to do it, Dad. Just allow me some time to go into mourn for what's about to happen, understandably, right? Well, what we see here is a tragedy. You may have been asking the same question when, when I first read this. I mean, how, what, I mean, what in the world do we even pull out of this passage? Why did he make this vow? Why would he honor this vow? What in the world just happened? Like he makes a vow to the Lord, but this isn't what we would see characterized by, by a strong man of God. Right, that you would think that it was honoring to the Lord to sacrifice your daughter? Like something that, that God, if you, if you look in Deuteronomy 18, he's already outlawed this. He said that there should be no, uh, no one should offer up their son or their daughter in burnt offering to me. It's an abomination before the Lord. So God has already outlawed this, but, but Jephthah is doing it in, in response to God giving this Ammonite kingdom into his hand. What's happened? Well, believe what we see has happened in this passage is the result of distraction. 
You see, if you remember, Jephthah was driven out of his home where it said that he, he took up residence. He resided amongst people that were very different from him. Uh, amongst people that had very different convictions, that thought very different about God and how to please him. It said that worthless fellows collected around him and he, he's went and he's settled. He's got a new home and a new way of life. And, 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 and I think there's some principles that we see in this passage. I think that we need to understand through this testimony of what just happened in Jephthah's life that the, the voices you allow closest to your life will shape you. The people that are speaking into your life, the closest, the loudest voice you hear will begin to distract you. This is the reality. There's, a, there's a, a, I think, a huge point in this, too, of just the importance, fathers, of, of what you mean to your kids' lives. Listen, Jephthah was driven out of his home because of his father's sin. And because of his father's sin, his sons grew up to despise their brother, ran him out of home, and because his father wasn't discipling, the world began. And you remember in the beginning of Judges, God gave the nation of Israel a very clear directive. He said, you need to drive out the, the pagan people that have inhabited the land that I've set apart from you. You need to drive out the Canaanites. And, and the danger for the nation of Israel, what we see in Jephthah's life, is that because they didn't drive out the Canaanites, they became the Canaanites. And so what happened with Jephthah is that he, he didn't only begin to entertain the ideas of these, these pagans that he was now living amongst, but he began to embody a lot of the practices and practice a lot of the things that they thought about the Lord. You may think about it. If he was discipled in the home of a God-fearing man, he would have known. Deuteronomy is clear, and they had access to the text, right? He would have known that when, he, I mean, he, now listen, it's, the reason I'm saying it's a distracted faith is because I think that Jephthah, I think Jephthah was trying to be sincere in honoring the Lord. In fact, here's what I read this week, and this blew my mind, right? This story, I mean, we're shocked by what we just read. Are we not? Is anybody not? Like, okay, I hope you are, right? right we're shocked by what we just read. But did you know Jephthah's name's recorded in the Hall of Faith in, in Hebrews chapter 11? Alongside, if you don't know what it is, like, the writers of Hebrew, uh, the writers of, the writer of Hebrews, uh, man, just says, here are all these heroes that we've, we, we look to in the faith. And he, he talks about Abraham. He talks about Moses. He talks about David. And all of these people that we would say, yes, like throw that on a color and sheet and put it in VBS, right? That, these, are the people that, these are the people that we look to. These are our heroes. These are the people that we want to embody some of the characteristics and the way that they loved and served the Lord. These are the people. Well, you know that Jephthah's name is recorded alongside of them? This man who sacrificed his daughter. So here's what I want you to understand. Jephthah had a very sincere faith. It was a distracted faith. Because he had lived amongst people that didn't understand, that didn't know, that, that, that thought that. I mean, it was very common in pagan, in pagan societies to, that you would offer up human sacrifices that they believed was honoring to their pagan gods. And in fact, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the reward. And so what happened was Jephthah, after living amongst these people, listening to what they thought about God, he began to pick up on some of the things that they thought. And what happened was, it, in, in an act of sincere devotion to God, he said, God, if you just give these people to my hand, I will offer up something to you that will please you. And he, wouldn't, he had no lens to see because his father had not discipled him, because, of, because he had been driven out of his home and the world began discipling him, that when the door swung open and it was his daughter, he didn't pump the brakes. 
He had no lens to see that that is not honoring to God. And we look at this text, I think, so often. So often, I think, we say, man, what is up with Jephthah? Why would he? I would never. I would never. When the reality is, church, there are so many things that are competing for your attention today that maybe you don't sacrifice your family literally for, but you might sacrifice your family spiritually for. And listen, the casualties are greater, are greater than a physical life. There are people always, it's a, it's a principle I think we need to be aware of. There are always people looking into your life. There are always people looking into uh, the message and the story and the, the principle and the devotion that you have to the Lord. What are you, what are you showing them? What are you showing them? Listen, we are a people that are, our hearts are targeted by so much, are they not? There's so much pulling. There is so much competing. There's, and listen, it might not be that your Christianity has become synced up with some uh, paganistic deity. But it might be that your Christianity has been compromised by culture. Right? Your faith might be sincere, but it might be distracted. Let me talk about a couple of these distractions I think we see in real life today. We talked about one of them last week. We talked about materialism, right? This hedonistic idea. Hedonism is this idea that pleasure is ultimate. And so for there, I think there are so many Christians that because the world has begun discipling us, because the world has begun speaking into us and begin pulling on us and begin tugging on us, that we think that we can somehow serve the Lord and serve ourselves. So we can somehow serve the Lord and love Jesus, but, but also that God will just understand that, that my, my passions and my pleasures are ultimate. Or actually, we would, we would think that they're on level ground, but, but they actually trump it. And we see this in, in many ways. Uh, one, maybe, maybe it's at home there's so, because pleasure is ultimate. And maybe we, we, we don't even know this. This is subliminally have taken place over years of business pursuits. Because pleasure is ultimate for you, you would sacrifice your family on the altar of, of corporate gain. That you would pour yourself out day and night, day and night, day and night as your daughters and your sons are, are growing. and You're missing all of these moments with them as you should be speaking into their lives. You're grinding it out on Excel sheets all night. Now listen, I want to say, i got to qualify that. I'm going to make sure I come back. There's nothing wrong with Excel. I can't use it. <laughs> right? I, can't, I don't speak the language or the, the formulas. There's nothing wrong with that. At the expense of your family? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are so many people today. Now, and here's how, we, here's how we camouflage this. We say, well, I'm doing it for my family. I'm doing it for my I'm doing it to provide for my family. Listen, your family needs more than dollar signs. Your kids need dads discipling them. Your wife needs a husband. Your husband needs a wife loving them doing community with them, just walking in their lives, being the, the partner that God has given them as he's gifted us with marriage. We, we don't only see it play out in corporate gain. We also see it play out in, I think, the way that we, we treat our kids and idolize our kids because pleasure is ultimate, right? right? Because pleasure is ultimate, mixed in with this 
kind of Christian undertone that we say we're pursuing God, but, but we really love our kids so much, and we want to honor the Lord so much by bowing down to our kids that we not only, you saw it play out at uh, Dagum, uh, what's it called, Black Friday, it felt like Black Friday, a tax, tax, uh, tax-free weekend, right? Like I, I pulled into Dick's parking lot, and it was like, whoa. What is, what is this? Are they giving basketball goals away? Uh, but it was, I walked in, it was like tax-free. And I was like, oh, that's, that's what's up. That's what it's going on. Right? Parents will pour out their bank accounts to make sure that their kids look the best. And they, you know, they smell the best. They got all the cologne and stuff coming in. They got the fresh white shoes and all this stuff going on. They look the best. But maybe we've missed the point. Maybe we're, we're too busy making them look beautiful to the world but useless to the Lord. Maybe, maybe it's, you know, it takes place in the, in the fact that we would sacrifice gathering and bringing our kids to the, to the church to, to, to gather with the saints and to, and to spend time in the Word and to spend time in worship and to, and to see mom and dad worship alongside of them, to be, that, that to be modeled before them because we are bowing down to their wants and their needs and we're serving their, their passions of self through travel ball and whatever else, right? Listen. We are people who are greatly distracted today. And it's not only in this pleasure, this self-pleasurement and this hedonistic kind of dilution that's happened in our Christian society today, but it's also in being relevant, man. We, we blunt the edges of our Christian faith and so that we kind of fit in a little easier, that it's not so controversial on the workplace. We, we don't talk about Jesus when we're at work or at school because man, we don't want to be looked weird or marginalized or pushed out of certain kind of social circles. And, and what it is, guys, whether we think so or not, what's happening is that if we don't, if we, if we aren't refocused, what begins to happen is the weight of culture is so real that it begins to just, we drift. We drift. And then what begins to happen is at some point we look up, we come back to our Bible and our faith looks more foreign than familiar. Our faith looks very different. It doesn't look like the gospel-saturated, biblically-centered faith that God desires from us. So what do we do about it? Well, I think there's three things we see in this passage I want to land today. The first one's this. Again, like I just said, I think we have to acknowledge the real weight of culture in our lives today. We've got to understand that the things that you stream, the movies that you watch, the music you put in, if you put crap in, you get crap out. That is just the, I don't even know if I should have said that, but that, that is just a reality, <laughs> right? That's, if not, they'll edit it. But listen, uh, that's just a reality, right? It, you will become the sum of the voice that speaks loudest in your life. If you're not hearing from God, if you're only hearing from the world, if you're only, uh, you know, if your friends, the people that are closest to you are not People that share the same biblical passions as you, or if they're not people that fear the Lord, then you will start adapting, kind of diluting your faith with the faith of those unbelievers, with the faith of the world. Culture is so real, and the weight of it is so real, that if we don't acknowledge it, we're no different than that texter driving down the middle of the road 55 mile an hour traveling a football field with their eyes on their Instagram stories. We're going to look up and we're going to find ourselves in a place that we don't want to be. And it will land at the hurt of ourselves and those around us. Culture pulls. Culture distracts. 
And we are affected by it. The final, I mean, the second point I want to make, this kind of leads to this point. If culture distracts, well, what focuses? It's the, it's the Bible. God has revealed to us everything we need to know in order to live lives of godliness, holiness, lives that are honoring and glorifying of his son. But so many believers today think that there's somehow we can come and if, as long as we, you know, listen to enough hill songs, uh, Hillsong songs during the, during the day, that that will suffice for Bible reading. And it's just not true. If you're not hearing from the voice of God, you're hearing from another voice. I promise you. You're hearing. What you're doing is you're muzzling God and saying, I, I, I want to hear from the world. This is because this, this, supports my, my, uh, this supports my passion of self. This supports my, my uh, uh, diluted commitment, my half-hearted devotion to the Lord. This, is, this supports that, and it doesn't hurt. It doesn't strike a nerve. It doesn't call me to change. But if we want to be a people who focus our faith, the Bible is the answer. The Bible drives out those distractions. The Bible recenters us when we drift. You, you remember what God told Joshua right before he went into the promised land? Right before they, they crossed the Jordan River and went to take Jericho? He says, what, what did he say? He said, he said, be strong and courageous. But he went on. He said, do not depart from the word of the law to the right or to the left. Why? Because God knew that if they would go into this pagan society and they weren't driven into the text, they weren't, if they weren't motivated and governed by the Bible, that they would drift. They would drift. And not only would they begin to kind of start understanding and accepting some of the practices of paganism, but they would start practicing them. This is the same danger, very real and very present in our lives today. If you are a Christian in this room, and you do not have a healthy diet of God's word, you will drift. You will drift. You will drift. And so we've got to understand that culture is real and it has a very real pull on our lives. We've got to be driven by the Bible that drives out distraction. And the final thing I want to show you from this passage today as a source of hope, if we're going to be a people that have a faith without distraction, is that we don't need to look to Jephthah, but we need to look to Jesus. Jesus is the better judge that Jephthah was just supposed to be pointing our eyes to. If you remember, look, Jephthah, this whole story has been pointing to the gospel. This whole story has been screaming Christ. This whole story is like this flashing neon sign trying to get us to see Christ in the text. If you remember, Jephthah was driven out of his home, just ran out of town by his brothers. What was Christ? What did Isaiah talk about? He was despised and rejected by men. See, Jephthah was an image of Christ. The brothers drove him out of his home so that he had no share in the inheritance. But what is so incredible about Christ and the reason he is a better judge and a better source of hope for us is that Jesus chases down the outcast. Jesus chases down the marginalized. Jesus chases, chases down the one living on the fringe because they don't think that they deserve or they don't merit or they are unqualified, which by the way, church, it's all of us in this room, right? We're all Jephthahs living on the fringe. And what Jesus does is he chases us down and he gives us a holy inheritance. He gives us glory. He gives us an eternal significance. He gives us purpose. He gives us hope. This whole story is about Jesus. But so often we get, we get drugged down in the mire and in the mud of 
the text and just the routineness of this, of this passage, but what this whole study in Judges ought to do for you is help you understand, lift up your head. Man, you have some encouragement. You are maybe jacked up. We're not going to change that, right? Some of you are jacked up, all right? But here's the promise is that Jesus is better, and he's able, and he can, and he will if you would just humble yourself, submit yourself to him, get your head in the Bible, and do the things it calls you to do. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for I thank you for this passage. God, I thank you for this story of Jephthah and what it challenges us to do, Lord. God, I pray that we would be a people who would push back the distractions in our life, God. God, that we would be a people that refuse to drift, Lord. And because we know that the the presence and the pull and the the realities of culture and and the realities of Satan and the realities of of sin are so real and, and are so strong in our lives, Lord. That, God, we would have an equally, if not greater, devotion to hear from you, to be to be governed and driven and steered by you, Lord. Oh, God, I know there's someone in this room today, Lord, that has drifted. We know that there's people in this room today, Father, that are hurting and have begun to believe a lie about themselves that this world has, has begun speaking into their life. God, I pray that through this text and through this story of Jephthah, Lord, that there would be an encouragement in this house, God, that the, the, the same Lord we're about to sing to is able to, like Jephthah, make a wrecked situation a pearl for us. He's able to rewrite a story. Oh God, I pray that we would be a people that have a faith without distraction and it would be a faith that is honoring to you. Would you get the glory today, Lord, as we sing? And Father, I pray that God, you would, uh, you would just move today. It's your name we pray. Amen.